To be sure, the birth of Jesus did not mark the beginning of Jesus' existence. Jesus was with God from the beginning. His birth only served to mark His advent into this world. And as we said last Lord's Day, and we've said on many occasions, Jesus did not tell us to celebrate His birth. Because you see, it was not His birth that means so much to the world. It's the death of Jesus that's really important. It's the death of Jesus that really matters. We observed that just a moment ago as we partook of that memorial feast that He instituted the night before He was crucified. But all of that said, once a year the world marks the legendary birth of the Savior. Once a week the saints of God remember His death. Sometime in the long ago, a day unmarked, a day unknown for certain, a day unremembered, was the day that Christ was born. Now to be sure, as I've said, and those of you who have known me a while know this, I do not celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday. But nobody on the top side of God's green earth loves the Christmas season more than I do. I love the trees. In fact, we'll have four Christmas trees at our house. I love the lights. Santa Claus. All the sweets and all the goodies, the pies, the cakes, the candies. Did I mention all the food? Decorating the house. On the top of our grand piano in our living room at home, it is covered in Santa Claus figurines. Someone said not long ago to me and Norma, said, you know, if you and Norma don't stop buying Santa Clauses, you're either going to have to get a bigger piano or get another piano. It's covered. And I love it. Now, I don't think God commands us to observe the birth of Christ. I don't even think God desires that we celebrate the birth of Christ. But I do not think it is sinful and I do not think it is amiss to take advantage of all of the advertising and all of the attendant religious flavor and the fact that the world is more focused on the birth of Christ right now than at any other time during the year. That time that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that, if you'll recall, is the way John begins the Gospel story. And so, with all of the things taking place this time of year, that gives us a reason to take advantage of the season and reflect on the influence of Jesus Christ. The influence that Jesus had on this world. Now there are some people that insist on just ignoring the day. And if someone insists on just ignoring it, if they think it's heathenish, if they think it's sinful to pretend they don't know what's occurring, that's their privilege. I just simply don't agree with them. 
But if you think about the birth of Jesus Christ, and if you consider His advent into the world in Bethlehem's manger so many years ago, think about the song we just sang. Have you ever asked yourself, why? Have you ever in moments of reflection wondered, why? Why did the Savior leave heaven? Why did Jesus come to this earth below? Why did the Word become flesh and dwell among us? You find the answer in John chapter 3 and verse 16. A passage that's often referred to as the golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But if you want to fully appreciate that text, you need to read the context also. Because John chapter 3 and verse 16 is a gem in a rare setting. I'm going to begin reading with verse 14 through verse 17 of that third chapter. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now there might be passages of Scripture in the Bible that are more beautiful than that from a standpoint of rhetoric. There might be passages in the Bible that are more poetic and more ornate than that passage. But folks, there is no passage anywhere in this book that is more glorious in its meaning. Because in those few words, the entire gospel story is told. The reason that my Savior came to this earth is told in those verses. In fact, it's all included in one word. A word of only one syllable. A word spelled with only four letters. L-O-V-E. So this morning, we're not going to talk about the fact that Mary and Joseph made their way to Bethlehem. And Mary had told Joseph he needed to call ahead for reservations, but being a typical man, Joseph didn't do it. And they got to Bethlehem and all the hotels were full. And Joseph comes out and he says, Mary, I'm so sorry. And that's how the song Silent Night came into being. We're not going to talk about the fact that there was no room in the inn. We're not going to talk about the no vacancy sign. We're not going to talk about the fact that Jesus was born in a manger. We're not going to talk about the shepherds hearing the songs of the angels or the wise men that followed that star to see where the baby laid. We're going to talk about what's in John 3.16. We're going to talk about why Jesus came 
We're going to talk about God's love. God's love for me. And God's love for you. God loved the world. And God loved the world to the extent that He gave His only begotten Son to redeem the world. Which causes us to ask, what was wrong with the world? Why would God feel that He had to pay such a great price for its redemption? The world was perishing. It was lost and perishing and dying in sin. And in order that the world might not perish, the God of heaven stepped in. And He gave His Son that whosoever, not that the whole world unconditionally might be saved, but that whosoever believed on the Son should not perish. So in that text, we have on one side a God. A loving God. A giving God. And on the other side we have a world. A perishing world. A receiving world. Satan has made mankind believe that God hates man and God wants to damn his soul to the fires of eternal hell. In fact, sinful man believes that God hates man. And they see God as a monster who lurks behind the shadows, ready to pounce upon us and rend us limb from limb and fling us off forever into the fires of hell. A more distorted view of God than that could never be found. The Bible pictures God to us as a kind compassionate and loving Father. A Father who is not willing that anyone should perish. A Father who desires that everyone should come to repentance. And in order to induce men and women to come to repentance, what did God do? God revealed His love to men. The Old Testament. Read it carefully. It's full of assurances to man and to woman that God loves them. Assurances that God wants to save you and me from sin and its resultant suffering. But it's in the New Testament. That God's redeeming love is fully revealed. It's in the New Testament. We have the concrete example of God's love. It's in the New Testament. The gift of God's love is given. Beloved, we cannot overemphasize the love of God. We need to tell of God's love more in our preaching and our teaching. We need to stress it. It needs to be made the central point around which all other points revolve. God's redeeming grace and God's infinite love is the basic truth upon which all other doctrine must rest. All other doctrine, are you listening? 
without this fundamental truth is worthless. To preach doctrine without basing it upon the primal principle of the love of the God of heaven is to feed the hungry souls of men and women on nothing but husks. If people are convinced of the truth of our doctrine and led to adopt it without being moved and motivated by the love of God, they are not converted to Jesus Christ. They'll not be Christians. They might be ranting dogmatists, bitter partisans. They might be zealous propagandists. They might be ready to contend and quibble over a trifle. But we must make God's love the central point that everything revolves around. I preached about this one time. And it reminded me of a story of a preacher who preached a revival one time. And this preacher was preaching in a revival and he preached three lessons in a row on the love of God. And a brother came up to him after the third lesson on God's love and said, Good lesson. When are you going to preach the gospel? He said, What? When are you going to preach about the things a man has to do to be saved? The translation, When are you going to prove I'm right and all of my friends are wrong? It was nothing but a desire to establish a creed. The love of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why not, Paul? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That word in that passage that's translated power, it comes from a Greek word from which we get dynamo, dynamic, and dynamite. The gospel is God's power to salvation. The gospel is, is God's dynamite to salvation. The gospel is the mighty magnet that draws men to Jesus Christ. Will a creedal statement draw men to God? No. Will the preaching of duties move men to love God? No. Will the preaching of laws and commandments as the arbitrary enactments of a tyrannical master make men love God? No. And folks, it won't make men and women love each other either. And then you take a step back and you look at me and you say, Tim, what are you thinking? Are not commandments and laws included in the gospel? Does not the gospel have terms and conditions of pardon with which men and women must comply with in order to be saved? Absolutely. Unequivocally, the answer is yes. But obedience has to come 
as a result of hearing the sweet old story of Jesus and His love. The word gospel means good news. It means glad tidings. Well, what does that good news, what do those glad tidings consist in? Is it not the fact that man was lost? Perishing? Without God and without hope? And God saw man plunged in this deep distress. And God loved him. He loved me and you. And He loved us to the extent that He was willing to send His Son to the cross to redeem us. That's the gospel. That's the power that attracts men and women to Jesus Christ. You see, in order to make men love Him, God had to show His love to man. And you think of God's love. And when you speak of the love of God, how are you going to adequately describe it? Could you describe it in the form of the love of Damon and Pythias? <clears throat> How well do you remember your Greek mythology? The short version is that Pythias is accused of crimes against Dionysus of Syracuse. He's sentenced to death. And he makes a request that he might go home and put his affairs in order. His friend Damon agrees to stay as a hostage in his place in the prison cell to ensure Pythias comes back. When Pythias does come back, the king is so impressed, he actually releases both men. But you see, the story of Damon and Pythias, that's the story of a man that's willing to lay down a life for a friend. Jesus laid down His life for His enemies. Jesus laid down His life for the very ones that nailed Him to that cross. Well, maybe you could describe it in the form of a mother's love. The swan mother who plucks feathers from her own breast to line the nest for her young. Mothers who've given their own life, giving birth to a new life. And even in disgrace, a mother still loves. But if we consolidated all of the love that mothers have into one great love, and mothers have a lot of love, it would still not be comparable to the love of our Heavenly Father. So where do we go? Where do we go to find an illustration of the love of God? How do we express the love of God? Poets have written about it. Their poetry has been set to music and we sing of it. But mere words no matter how eloquent they are, can never fully express the love of God. The only way that we can ever find God's love adequately expressed is to take God's own expression of it. Because you see, the depth of man's sin and the breadth of God's love 
Those are two things that cannot be fixed by human parameters. But we get an idea of both of them when we see what God did to save man from sin. Because when we come to the cross, we see the full test of God's love. God was sitting on His throne in heaven. And God looked down from heaven. And He saw men and women lost and dying in sin. And then God looked out over His dominion to try and select a sacrifice for that sin. But the sin of men and women was so great... Where would God ever find an adequate sacrifice? Not all the lambs that had died upon all of Israel's altars could save one sinner. All the wealth of the world was insufficient to purchase the salvation of just one soul. So God robbed heaven of its richest jewel. God plucked the fairest flower that was blooming in the gardens of heaven. He sent Jesus, His Son, His only Son, to the land of light and life, from the land of light and life and love, to a world of darkness. A world of death. A world of hate. And He sent Jesus there to be born of a woman. And Jesus was born in poverty. He lived in suffering. And He died in shame. For me. For you. We see the full test and the strength of God's love when we come to the final hour of the cross. Jesus ate the Passover with His disciples. Then He went out into the Garden of Gethsemane. He left eight of the apostles in one place. He took three others a little deeper into the garden with Him. To watch as sentinels. And he left them there, and then Jesus went deeper into the garden. And Jesus prayed. And he said, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Three times Jesus prayed that prayer. He fell prostrate on the prostrate on the ground and he said, Oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. Not my will, but thine be done. He prayed so hard the sweat fell from his brow, the capillaries burst, and great drops of blood fell in the sand that night. And you ask yourself if you wanted to, if you would permit me to describe God in human terms. 
Did God not see that? Which one of us, which one of us could watch our son go through the agony Jesus went through in Gethsemane and not lift a finger to stop it? I couldn't. And if you say you could, there's either something seriously wrong with you or you just don't know how to tell the truth. But God looked down from His throne in heaven. He saw His Son face down on the ground. He saw His Son praying for the cross to be taken out of the way. And the heart of God was touched. But seeing that scene, God looked into the future and God saw another scene. God saw all the teeming millions of earth's race yet unborn. He saw you and He saw me. And He saw us dying and perishing and burdened down under the weight of sin. And God said to His Son, My Son, it is not possible. It is not possible for me to take this away. Because if you don't go to the cross, all of the millions of earths yet unborn will be lost and perishing in sin. So Jesus went to the cross. He was nailed to that cross. I want you to visualize that. Not the sanitized version, but I want you to visualize a rough-hewn wooden cross. It's never seen a planer, folks. It's never seen a belt sander. It's got splinters all in it. And Jesus has been beaten unmercifully till His back is raw and bleeding like a piece of raw meat. And they take Him and they spread His arms out on that cross. And they drive nails right there and right there. And His back is up against that rough-hewn piece of wood. They take a spike and they cross His feet over and they drive a spike through His feet and they lift that cross up and they drop it into the hole in the ground. And then they put some dirt around it and there He hangs. Death by crucifixion is the most ignominious, painful death a man could die. Because you die from suffocation. The lungs fill with water and you literally drown in your own body fluid. And the only way to breathe is to push up with your feet to get a breath. And every time Jesus pushed up to breathe, that spike going through His feet caused excruciating pain. The splinters from that piece of wood on His raw back dug into His Holy flesh. And He did it for me. And He did it for you. Why? Because He loves me. Because He loves you. He died there on that cross for us. Do you, in your heart, 
in your heart's affection. Do you have a place for a Savior like that? Can you? Can I? Can we look with indifference on the suffering of Jesus as He hangs bleeding and dying for us? God loves you. And God loves me. And Jesus died for you. And Jesus died for me. Can you and I, the ones most concerned and interested, be indifferent and not care? You see, what we have to do, what we must do, we must look past the baby in Bethlehem's manger. And we must see the baby in Bethlehem's manger as he's grown to a man and becomes the suffering Savior, the one that offers salvation to us. He offers it on His terms, make no mistake about it. Salvation is on His terms that we must believe in Him with all of our heart, turn our back on sin through repentance, confess His name, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the washing away of past sins. And you know, doing that, you know what it does? It does what we talked about in our Bible class this morning in Acts eleven twenty six, where the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Complying with the Lord's terms of pardon, it makes you a Christian. Nothing more. Nothing less. Nothing else. Just a simple New Testament Christian. If you've never done that, I beg you to do it before you leave this building this morning. If I could do it for you, I would. Jesus loved your soul enough to die for you. I love your soul enough to do that for you. I love it just that much, but I can't. I can't do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. Maybe you've done that. You haven't lived God's kind of life. You haven't lived for Jesus. Maybe you want to come back to the Lord. I want you by an eye of faith right now. See from His head, His hands, His feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Our thorns compose so rich a crown. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. It's His invitation as we stand and while we sing.